Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the Sour the Program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255. Much more to get to here this afternoon. But off the top in this hour, a pretty big question about uh, understanding the question of intelligence life. Does it exist elsewhere in our galaxy? How can we find out? Part of the attempt so far uh, has been to listen, to listen for signals, listen for signs uh, of intelligent uh, civilizations. But the approach from Medi, the Medi organization, Medi.org is the website, is, is a little bit different. And it's about being more proactive. It's about sending out messages to potential intelligent civilizations, almost in a way announcing our presence, which to some does entail some risks. Notably, uh, Stephen Hawking has spoken out about this, that maybe it's not the best idea to be calling attention to ourselves in that way. We don't know who might receive those messages and what their intentions might be toward us. But the idea of being able to communicate, not just become aware of, but communicate with intelligent civilizations is endlessly fascinating. So later this year, a message will be broadcast uh, via the Agunili Earth Station in the UK, a message targeting TRAPPIST-1, a star system that, as far as we know, has as many as three potentially habitable planets. As mentioned, you can find out more about this project at Medi.org, the Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence Organization. Joining us on the line is the president of Medi International, Dr. Douglas Vakoch, joins us on the line here. Doug, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Rob. Thanks for having me. All right, so we'll talk a little more specifically about the message and, and the timeline here, and then we can talk a bit about, you know, sort of the, the idea behind all of this. But uh, October 4th of this year is when this message is, is set to be launched. So what, what needs to go into that between now and then? Well, we uh, are continuing to develop the message that we're sending. Uh, and uh, as you say, this has been a, a really provocative issue. Some people yeah. like Stephen Hawking have said, you better be a little bit careful. What happens if the aliens come to Earth and, and eat us for lunch? Um, but there's one point that Stephen Hawking overlooks, and that is that any aliens that have the spacecraft that could come to Earth to do us harm actually already know about our existence. So uh, Earth's atmosphere itself has been giving off evidence that we have abundant life for two billion years We've been uh, sending accidental radio and TV signals for 100 years. So any civilization a little bit more advanced than us already knows that we're here. So cat is out of the bag. They know we're here. And so sending an intentional message doesn't increase the chances uh, of an alien invasion. But it does open the possibility of engaging in a conversation between the stars. Uh, And the reason that we're doing this is because... We ask ourselves, as you said, Rob, um, there's been ongoing efforts to listen. It's a project called Steady, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's been going on for 60 years. But what if every civilization out there is doing what we are, simply listening and not transmitting? It could be a very quiet universe. So at, at Medi, we're reversing the process, sending messages. And the message that we're sending uh, in October is to coincide with the start of World Space Week. It's uh, celebrated for space exploration every year. It starts on October 4th, and that's the day that we will transmit a message that's related to this year's World Space Week theme, which is space and sustainability. That, in fact, we will reflect on our own situation here on Earth by telling any extraterrestrials who are listening to us that we've got some insight into some of the challenges we're facing Uh, with our global climate crisis. And so that's going to be one of the innovative directions is uh, telling the extraterrestrials that, yes, they see from their observations of our planet that we've been doing uh, quite a bit of polluting over the last decades, but we also have some insight and we realize we need to turn things around. 
The, the advantage of, of a, a more powerful targeted message, as you mentioned, I mean, we've been broadcasting signals for, for many years. I mean, in the movie Contact, right, the aliens just simply repackaged the 1936 Olympic broadcast and, and sent it back to us. But what's the advantage of, of having something that's more targeted, both in direction and message, and, and something that's more powerful? Well, by sending something that is uh, clearly an artificial signal that is designed for an intelligence, a powerful signal that's directed says, not only are there are we here, they already know that, but so far they've been they've been over uh, hearing our conversations among ourselves through our television and radio. What an intentional, powerful, targeted signal says is, we want to make contact. Sometimes we talk about uh, SETI as an attempt to join the galactic club. Mm-hmm. But what I find so strange is no one ever talks about paying our dues or, or even submitting an application. And so that's what we're doing with those targeted messages of saying, if there's someone out there, um, if there's a group of you, we would like to join in. Here is our application. So, uh, you know, my, my big concern is that the aliens are listening to us. But they're saying, okay, you're, you're waiting for us to send the messages, but show us you've got some skin in the game and send us something yourself. So that's what we're doing with our targeted messages. Right. And obviously, I mean, there's, there's no shortcut here. I mean, you know, these messages have to travel. And, and you know, the galaxy is a vast place, let alone all of the other galaxies that exist in the universe. So, I mean, you know, the closer the better, ideally. But, um, you know, how do we find that balance between what's, what's promising and, and what's closer that, at least that, more realistic that, yeah. Rob, you have you have identified the biggest challenge that we face it's not that the aliens are going to come to earth it's that in fact one of the reasons the aliens haven't come to earth is that it takes a tremendous amount of energy to travel between the stars it's relatively cheap to send radio signals but even then as you point out the distances are so vast so as we transmit our message to trappist one that signal is going to take almost 40 years to get there. So if they reply, um, it's not going to come back for almost 80 years. And so the greatest capacity we need to develop in order to really have a sustained METI project is a, a sense of patience. And our goal in sending a message is to give a civilization some insight into what a relatively young civilization in our galaxy looks like. And we assume that the aliens are going to be much older than we are, because that's what we need in order to have any conversation at all. We've had radio and TV signals for 100 years. But if that's the norm in the galaxy, if that's how old other civilizations last, there's almost no chance we're going to exist at the same time, given the 13 billion year history of the galaxy. You know, it's almost as if you'd have two fireflies that in the course of a a long, dark night, each flick on for a second. What's the chance it would be at the same time? Zero. So what we're doing is giving the extraterrestrials something that may be really quite rare, a message from a civilization that has just gained the capacity to engage in a conversation. And our hope is it's just intriguing enough to get a reply. Uh, so this message is targeted. We mentioned this this star that's uh, almost 40 light years away, Trappist-1. And in terms of finding those planets in the Goldilocks zone, this this one seems pretty encouraging. But what do we know about this star? What do we know about these these planets? Well, Trappist-1 um, is a what's called a red dwarf star. So unlike our sun, a yellow star, it's actually much dimmer. But what that means is uh, stars that are smaller and dimmer, like Trappist-1, actually continue to burn for a much longer time. So this planet, uh, this uh, star system will continue on long after our solar system uh, has, has gone. But the beautiful thing about Trappist-1 is that it's orbited by at least seven planets. But it doesn't matter if it's got a whole bunch of planets if they're not at the right distance. So what we're looking for are uh, star systems that have planets in what we call the Goldilocks zone. And that is where the temperature is not too hot, not too cold, but just right to support liquid water. The great thing about TRAPPIST-1 is there's not one, not two, but three planets in the habitable zone. So we have three planets that life could have evolved on, three planets where there may be civilizations out there with radio transmitters eager to make a reply. And I mean, even if we, we strike gold here, even if we find uh, an intelligent civilization that's at least within 
contactable, you know, distance, reachable distance from us. Um, you know, the ability to to communicate. I know there was a movie based on a short story. Um, you know, Arrival was the movie about how, how difficult it could be to to communicate with an intelligent civilization, even one that's somewhat comparable to ours. How much of a challenge is, is that potentially? How much do you, do you have to think about that in, in, in crafting a message that maybe they won't even know what it is? It's a tremendous challenge because, as you point out, the movie Arrival was great because it showed, in that case, the aliens were able to come to Earth. But even then, with a team of linguists, mathematicians, there was a back and forth. And, you know, it it took weeks for the aliens and the humans to understand one another. We're handicapped because we don't have that ability for instantaneous communication. Rob, when you and I are talking with one another... If we don't understand, we'd say, Doug, would you repeat that? Would you explain that again? But again, with TRAPPIST-1, that would take 80 years. So we need to think in a very different way than usual human communication and send a message that's as foolproof as possible. And so we start not by sending something in English. You know, I wish they would speak English, but they're not going to know that. But what does an alien need to know in order to build a radio receiver and transmitter? Well, they've got to know at least some basic math and science. I mean, if you don't do know something like 2 plus 2 equals 4, you're not going to be a good engineer on any planet. So that's what we use as a foundation for our message. This message in particular focuses on chemistry that is universal throughout the galaxy, and we start by sending them the periodic table of elements. It shows the patterns that we find between different chemical elements these are properties that help us see the order of the material universe. That's something that scientists will know about on any world. And it now becomes the, the key language that we can use to talk about something more specific to us. In this case, what we're doing to our environment. Because we can talk about the chemical changes that we have caused to our environment through pollution, through global warming. And the beauty of that is that the extraterrestrials can get a second look on that. They can actually study our atmosphere and see those changes themselves. So when the message we send by radio matches what they're able to observe through their telescopes, that gives them the assurance that, ah, they got it right. They, they, they aren't misunderstanding what we said. Right. And that, that ability to look at our atmosphere is something that we are developing right now. By the end of the uh, 20s, by 2029, the European Space Agency will send a spacecraft into space that will be able to look at great depth about the atmospheres around the planet orbiting distant stars. So we're on the brink of that now. Any civilization a little bit more advanced can already say, yep, we see that they've got some problem, too much carbon dioxide, methane, chlorofluorocarbons. That chemistry will be familiar with them, and they'll realize We've gotten ourselves into a kind of a dire situation here, and it may be actually hopeful for them that they see us having at least some awareness of it. Now, the math and the science component are, I suppose we could say, universal. But, you know, questions about who we are, what our values are, what we believe, that's much more subjective. That seems like that would be an obvious question. You know, Earthlings' message received, you know, who are you? What are you about? Who gets to answer that question? Who speaks for this planet? Well, our goal is that everyone should speak for this planet. So we've focused on the the scientific component of this project. But this transmission from the Goonley Earth Station in October is part of a broader project uh, called the Thea Beyond. Uh, and people can go to our website. Uh, it's spelled S-T-I-H-I-A dash beyond. Uh, and Thea is a music festival that's held in Uzbekistan every year that is not just to create beautiful music, but to increase an awareness of environmental issues. So it's it's uh, on a town that was at the edge of was formerly the Aral Sea. So this is a sea that has shrunk to about a quarter of the size it was decades ago um, due to uh, unsustainable agricultural practices. Uh, you know, it's threatened by uh, global warming to get a water supply there. So as part of our transmission, we'll also be including music from musicians who come to this annual music festival. Yeah. Uh, and we're also inviting people from around the world to send us your 
samples of music and we'll be selecting from among those. So the ideal situation is that everyone should be speaking from Earth. And this is our next attempt to start making that happen. Well, much more on all of this, uh, medi.org. Uh, Douglas, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is Dr. Douglas Vacco. She's uh, president of Medi International. Medi.org, headquartered uh, in San Francisco, as mentioned, this message will be launched in October uh, from this Earth station in the UK. So very specifically targeting this star system where there's at least some hope that intelligent life could exist. Three planets circling this Trappist-1 star believed to be in that Goldilocks zone. Doesn't necessarily mean there's anything there. Or, you know, there could be their equivalent of of dinosaurs roaming there, but um, it's as promising as anything else. At least that's close enough uh, that that we could uh, send a message and receive an answer within a reasonable period of time. I mean, this is 39 light years away. We send the message in October, assuming they get it, send something back right away. That's another 39 years. So, you know, you can do the math there. Anyway, we got a lot more to get to here this afternoon. Our number 403-974-8255. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. It's in that spirit of faith and of confidence that I join with Canadians everywhere in sharing this day of national achievement. It is in their name, Your Majesty, that I now invite you, the Queen of Canada, to give solemn proclamation to our new Constitution. So that was 40 years ago, April 17th, 1982. Prime Minister Trudeau, different Trudeau, obviously, inviting the Queen uh, to make it official. And thus, the Charter was born. 40 years since the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was created. And it was a very significant constitutional milestone for this country, both in terms of our independence, our relationship to the United Kingdom, uh, but also laying out you know, how we, we change uh, the Constitution moving forward. So it was very consequential. Regardless of how you felt about it at the time, if you were around and and following all of it closely, and how you feel about it today, you know, certainly it has had a big impact on this country, both in terms of the legal and constitutional landscape, even at a societal level, you could argue. You know, there's been some pretty important cases along the way that have really shaped the impact of this. But um, it was, uh, uh, as I say, a very consequential moment 40 years ago. It's a really interesting piece uh, up today at uh, The Hub, thehub.ca, on how the Charter has shaped society since 1982. The market has left on Canadian society. Joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, the author of that piece, Brian Bird, joins us, assistant professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law, UBC. Professor Bird, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Rob. I mean, I think people knew at the time that this was going to be uh, an important event, a consequential uh, event. But do you think even then the people realized the impact this would have? That's a good question. I think if you were to ask people who were around uh, then uh, or are still around, uh, did they think that the charter would have the impact it had in terms of the the breadth and depth and extent of the societal change, the landmark decisions on the various issues, uh, very uh, sometimes controversial, but very fundamental issues uh, that it has um, uh, touched and affected, I would say that a lot of people would be surprised, Uh, maybe for for better or for worse, about a variety of opinions as to whether they agree uh, with the direction which the charter has taken the country. But I, I would be I would think many people would be very surprised. Maybe didn't expect it would have as deep an impact as it has had over 40 years. So this was the Constitution Act, as it was known, that was brought in in 1982. And obviously, look, we had a Constitution. We had rights and freedoms that existed prior to 1982. So what changed with the passing of the proclamation of the Constitution Act? That's a very important point because a lot of the coverage in the past few days we've seen about the 40th anniversary has been on the 40th anniversary of the Charter, and that's true. That was one of the things, a very big thing that happened on that day, 1982, April 17th uh, of 1982. But there are two other big kind of pillars of what happened in 1982 at that same moment with the same stroke of the pen by Her Majesty, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Um, The first one is that, well, the Constitution came 
home. You often hear the word, maybe some of your listeners have heard the word patriation, the patriation of the Constitution. The idea there is that up until 1982, our Constitution was basically in London in the sense that we have the BNA Act, the British North America Act of 1867, which for, from 1867 to 1982 was the lion's share of our Constitution. And so that being a British statute, um, the only body that could amend it was the Parliament in the United Kingdom. And so one of the things that happened in 1982 is the Parliament in the United Kingdom gave us the Constitution and said, Canada, it's for you to, to, to basically change at home, change it in-house from now on. But the other big part, um, that could have happened many decades prior to 1982, but of course, unless we were content with living with the Constitution as it had been handed over to us whenever that moment happened to occur, we would also need some sort of rules of the road for how we would change the Constitution at home. How would we agree upon changing the Constitution further as a country uh, down the road? And that was the big stumbling block that actually goes back decades before 1982, as early as basically the late 1920s, there were discussions between the federal government and the provinces on what those rules of the road would be when the Constitution came home. And because we didn't get agreement um, until, or substantial agreement, I should say, until 1981, that's why it took until 1982 for it to come home. So it's important to note that we have the Constitution coming home in 1982. We have it coming home with rules of the road as to how it could be changed further if we decided to change it further. And then on top of that, of course, it also came home with a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Very interesting. And obviously, look, these were tough negotiations, and not everybody bought into this. Uh, and, and it's not as though you know people were, were opposed to, to rights and freedoms. But obviously, you know, the formula itself was, was a topic of some contention. You know, the, uh, even the whole principle of what led to the notwithstanding clause and the extent to which courts and judges could overrule elected officials when it came to legislation. These were big issues at the time, weren't they? Absolutely. There was, you know, up until kind of the 1945, kind of the post-war era, um, from I'd say the late 20s until 1945, the big stumbling block was, as I mentioned, how do we change the Constitution if and when it comes home? But then after 1945, you saw this push at the international level and also at the domestic level to basically um, uh, the international human rights movement, to basically a push for greater human rights protection that, you know, we'd seen the horrors of things done in the, in the name of law, things done, quote-unquote, legally by... Uh, by, by various um, uh, dictatorships and you know, evil regimes, but their recognition that well, you know, just because something is quote unquote legal, that doesn't uh, mean that it's moral. It can indeed things that are done legally could lead to some devastating atrocities. And so you, we had after 1945 this extra thing put on the list, which was okay. Maybe we should also, as a country, consider protecting human rights in our constitution in a very explicit and robust and unabashed way. And so you had now a very, uh, even more complicated to-do list after 1945. You have the amending formula, how do we change the constitution when it comes home, and then what should be in a Bill of Rights? Should we even have a Bill of Rights? And so things got more complicated after 1945, um, and in some ways it makes it even more impressive, I would say, that we ended up getting agreement on that very difficult uh, to-do list as of 1982. But as you alluded to, not everybody agreed. Um, and many people in the big, uh, the notable province that did not sign on in 1982 to this um, this deal was the province of Quebec. Uh, that was a very, um, a very um, notable um, absence um, that, uh, at that time. And we're still in some ways feeling it to this day. Well, and of course, that led to Meech Lake, that led to to Charlottetown. Obviously, you know, 1982 didn't bring us constitutional peace in this country, then did it? No, um, you know, it did not bring constitutional tranquility these past 40 years, not just on the charter front, uh, but on the charter front alone, meaning cases that have gone up to the Supreme Court of Canada on charter issues that have caused the Supreme Court of Canada or forced the Supreme Court of Canada to interpret, unpack, and apply the provisions of the charter, many of which are very open-ended uh, provisions. That in and of itself has done a lot of, uh, generated a lot of constitutional moments, if you want to call it that, since 1982. But just on the, on the, I guess, the political front, but also on other aspects of the Constitution that were added in 1982 that don't fall within the Charter specifically, such as Aboriginal rights, for example. And, and Brian, as you note in your, your piece that's up at the hub.c, obviously we've had some hugely important court decisions in, in the Charter era. I mean, there's what's RV Oaks, obviously, that was huge, RV Morgenthaler, Big M Drug Mart, uh, the Carter v. Canada case more recently that dealt with the assisted dying. We knew what we were putting into the charter, 
I guess we didn't know how it was going to be interpreted, did we? I think that's right. I mean, you mentioned the Carter decision, which uh, dealt with um, uh, medical assistance in dying. Um, I would, I've always been interested to go back, you know, have a time machine, go back to 1982, and to ask any of the, uh, the people involved, the framers, and just people who were kind of part of the drafters of the, uh, of the drafting of the Charter, did they ever think that the provision that was used um, uh, by the claimants in that case, Section 7 of the Charter, which is the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right to be not to be deprived of those except in accordance with fundamental justice. Did they think that that could ever be used as the basis for something like uh, a physician-assisted death? And I, well, with all the answers, I suppose, but my, my guess is that they probably didn't foresee that happening uh, down the road. And there are many other issues, not just that one. But uh, because of these open-ended provisions, you know, freedom of, of religion or equality or, uh, in that case, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, there's some inevitable unpacking that has to happen. Those uh, these provisions aren't self-interpreting. Well, it didn't need to be that way. I mean, you know, can we go back and, and look at uh, the process that resulted in this this document? Could it have been um, more detailed, more specific, more clear in its intentions? Yeah, that's one of those interesting things in terms of the negotiation. I suppose the more specific you, you get, I suppose you can see how that might invite further disagreement. Uh, because the more, then you might say, well, listen, why don't, we even go, why don't we even go a bit further? You can see how when you have multiple provinces and stakeholders and uh, all involved in this process, hard enough to get them, I suppose, to even agree on very open-ended um, concepts that they can all buy into, freedom of whatever it might be, expression, opinion, belief, conscience, freedom of association, equality. That was hard enough, I suppose, even the kind of broader <laughs> mm-hmm. statement. So I suppose if we went more specific, it might have opened up further cans of worms. Well, as we look forward, I mean, it, it's inevitable, I suppose, we'll have more landmark court rulings that I suppose maybe the 80th anniversary will reflect upon. Obviously, Meech Lake and Charlottetown, I think that, that kind of scared governments off from any sort of major overhaul or, or amendment, amending of the Constitution. But w- what do you expect to see in, in the years ahead? You know, I think part of it is just we can't even imagine. Uh, it's, it's hard because, as I mentioned, I think in 1982, could they have imagined even a fraction of the kind of issues that have come before the courts? One thing I will say is that there have been many provisions of the Charter that have yet to be really in any kind of robust way interpreted or tested by the courts. Um, a number of the fundamental freedoms in Section 2, uh, freedom of conscience, freedom of uh, peaceful assembly, um, the freedom of the press, uh, there are a variety of provisions in there that just haven't really even seen uh, kind of the light of uh, the courtroom, so to speak. So I think that's uh, an area for future um, kind of to look look there. But also I think from the issues, in terms of issues that might come up, I can't help but think that a big one, certainly climate change, we've seen that already uh, happening in a recent decision that actually wasn't a charter decision, it was a federalism, a division of powers decision last year that upheld the um, the constitutionality of the carbon uh, tax and the federal carbon tax. But maybe we'll continue to see kind of charter dimensions of that, but also I think privacy and technology. That to me seems to be a, an area that we've only really in some ways scratched the surface on. So that those ones come to mind as kind of top of mind for me. Very interesting. As mentioned, your latest, it's up at thehub.ca. Professor Bird, appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. All the best. Brian Bird, Assistant Professor of the Peter A. Allard School of Law, UBC, and his latest up at the Hub on uh, the Charter at 40. And the indelible mark it has left on Canadian society over the past four decades, for better or for worse. Welcome back. Well, earlier we were talking about the 40th anniversary of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, certainly one of the, the principles enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is uh, freedom of religion, freedom of belief, freedom of conscience. How important do Canadians hold those freedoms to be? And are Canadians convinced that uh, these freedoms are, are being well guarded and well protected? Uh, there's some fascinating findings on this in some new research uh, from the think tank Cardis in association with the Angus Reid Institute. Looking at that question, how do Canadians feel about the importance of these freedoms and whether they're being strongly protected? And, and there's some, some deeper digging here as well on how Canadians feel about religion itself, how religious are Canadians, both in terms of what they believe, how they practice those beliefs. Certainly we seem to see uh, stronger views here in Alberta on that, both in terms of belief in a God or higher power, uh, larger numbers in terms of participation in religious services, those who pray. So some really interesting uh, findings here. Joining us to talk about 
uh, some of those findings, the significance of all of this. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Ray Pennings. He's executive vice president with the think tank Cardus, Cardus.ca, that's C-A-R-D-U-S. Ray, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me again. Right, and we've seen similar studies in the past on you know how religious the country is, et, et cetera. But you know this seems to go a, a, a lot deeper than than what we've seen in the past. So tell us a bit more about why this this particular survey, this research, is so significant. We have been uh, partnering with the Angus Reid Institute since 2017, and one of the things we've been looking at is not only how faith relates to the individual, but also how faith and faith institutions um, are seen and participate in public life. Um, I took great encouragement from this poll um, in contrast to when we asked the same question three years ago uh, about the freedom of conscience and religion that you mentioned off the top. We're on the one, seven out of 10 Canadians, 69% um, highlighted it as an important thing. i I'm actually disappointed it's it's 69, but that's um, 10 points higher than it was just three years ago. And I think part of the answer, you know, we we have a religion challenge in this country. Um, You know, when you take a look at, you know, we had a a Muslim family earlier um, last year, you know, killed because of their religion. We have regular, you know, we've had, what, 70 burnings of churches? Um, there's regular hate crimes relating to religion. Uh, so there is a, there is a certain problem regarding religion, um, in, in Canada. There is also the untold story of religion that's not appreciated in terms of our social service system, our health system, our education system, which relies on significant religious participation. So I think there's a very important story to be told and understood and, um, gathering this data is part of that process. So Section 2A of the Charter says everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. A, freedom of conscience and religion. So as you say, I mean, 70% of Canadians agree with that sentiment. But do Canadians believe that that promise is being fulfilled? Where, where are Canadians at on that? Well, certainly it was interesting. Um, you know, we asked whether or not, um, you know, was it getting stronger or weaker? One third say it's deteriorating. It's getting worse. Um, compared to 28% who say it's about consistent and about a quarter who say it's becoming stronger. So, you know, and I, I, you know, I mentioned a few of the incidents that are there. I think another very interesting piece for me, we asked in the, in the poll, um, regardless of your own religion, how do you view these other groups? Do you think they're damaging or are they beneficial to society? Mm-hmm. But what I found most interesting that regardless of what religion you were, the more religious you were in your own views, the more respectful you were of the contributions that other groups yeah. were making to religion, uh, public life in Canada. Inversely, the less religious people were, and we measured seven practices, so those who were doing zero or one of those practices, for the most part, were quite negative about the contribution of every faith group. So hmm. Jews think way higher of Muslims, for example, than those who are non-religious. Um, so I think there's a problem with the category of religion and how it's understood among a, a good number of Canadians, and that certainly is an area of concern. Well, what, what do you think uh, explains those numbers? I mean, you know, traditionally there's been a narrative about, you know, rivalries and, and differences that go back literally centuries uh, b- between various religious groups, but here in Canada there seems to be almost like a, a kinship of sorts. Well, it's it's interesting. I I often quip that um, you know when I'm in the United States that uh, you know their 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 constitution was in many ways built on, on a war and a rebellion, whereas Canada's priest is a peace treaty mm-hmm. between yeah. French Catholics and English Protestants, both of whom thought the other was going to hell. Right. Um, and yet we built a country and a a structure in which there was respect. Um, a respect that's embedded in the Constitution and arguably is a, a defining characteristic of Canadian life. I think what we have today is a, um, you know, Charles Taylor, the McGill philosopher, calls it a closed secularism. And that is for an increasing number of people, even the category of God. It's not that they say no to God. It's just that they live in a wor- worldview or a framework without a sense of the transcendent. And um, I think that's problematic. I also think that religious groups have not done a particularly good job of telling their own stories. So I think it's complex. 
But as we have a growing multicultural society, and there are signs of hope in the midst of all of this, immigrants are significantly more religious. Also, interestingly, the the most likely group on a per capita basis to have gone to church in the last seven days or to have read a religious text in the last month are those under 30. So, you know, among younger people, there is a growing appreciation for religion compared to, for instance, the baby boomers and also among the immigrant communities. So as you look across the country, I mean, it does vary from province to province in terms of being religiously committed or, or you know, having questions or just flat out being non-believers. Uh, you know, certainly Alberta seems to stand out as maybe a more, I don't know, overtly religious or at least those who, you know, don't just have beliefs, but, you know, practice those beliefs, pray, go to church or, or religious services, etc. So what do we see as we look across the country? Well, certainly Quebec has always been um, a very different sort of um, story in terms of religion. First, of course, in terms of the influence of the Catholic Church in Quebec, and then since the 60s, uh, there has been sort of a very not strong negative religion um, aspect towards religion. So that, that has been historically true for a few decades. British Columbia typically is a little less religious as well. Um, the Prairie Provinces of Atlantic Canada here um, are probably a little more religious. And as you mentioned, you know, in Alberta, you've got a third more religiously committed people uh, than we do in Canada as a whole. Um, you know, their, their sense of the contribution of faith to public life. I think part of that also has to do with how communities were formed. I think particularly out west, um, you know, you had to conquer the wilderness and conquer the prairies and, and all of the elements. It took community um, it wasn't a reliance on government programs. It was a reliance on your neighbors and a care for each other that was at the heart of um, of building the West. And religious communities played a very prominent role in that. So it's part of the history. It's embedded perhaps somewhat differently than it would be in, in Ontario, for example. So, you know, Canada's a complex place with very different histories and the role of, of faith um, and which faith and the particular angles of faith vary across the country as well. It's interesting, Ray, because, you know, we're coming off of, of two years of, you know, kind of life-changing sort of a, a event, this pandemic, which maybe at some level affected, you know, people's relationship with, with God or religion or spirituality. I think, you know, we've also seen, you know, some more specific examples of, you know, freedom of religion being put to the test. I know here in Alberta, there's some churches that have launched the constitutional challenge of some of Alberta's pandemic measures. So how do you think the last two years have impacted, you know, these, these survey results? Um, I think there's a couple of things. It's not in this survey, but a different survey we did in terms of social isolation. What was interesting is when you take a look at people who are suffering loneliness, um, depression, social isolation, and this was already pre-pandemic, but I think it's only been amplified through the pandemic. It was not, it was not your income or religion or, um, economic status or that that was the variable. The most likely defense against social isolation was one, your family status, and secondly, whether you belong to a community of faith. And, uh, certainly some of the surveys that we did, um, during the course of the pandemic reinforced that fact that those who were already in a community of faith found networks of support. And that support was not just uh, the debate about, you know, whether worship on Sunday was an essential service. That support expressed to care for the poor or for the sick and for the dying and and concerns in terms of help um, that was, you know, that that people were frustrated in terms of not being able to provide. So I certainly think the, you know, two years of isolation, um, we are social people. We are, you know, I, I say this myself as, as a confessing Christian, believing that we were created for relationship with God and our neighbor. And um, during two years, um, it's been very difficult to do either in terms of that. And that, that undoubtedly has an impact in the frustration. And when one-third of Canadians say they're um, finding, you know, freedom of religion deteriorating, I don't doubt that a very significant factor is some of the pandemic lockdowns and challenges. Very interesting. Well, much more on all of this is mentioned. Cardis.ca. Ray, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. It's my pleasure. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Ray Pennings. He's executive uh, vice president uh, with the think tank Cardus, C-A-R-D-U-S. Cardis.ca. You can read more on some of these findings here. So that is interesting to see. I mean, you know, the, the fact that Canadians would 
have a deep appreciation for freedom of religion shouldn't be a surprise. I almost agree with Ray, you know, coming at it from the perspective of a non-believer, though, that, that it is incredibly important that that freedom exists. And frankly, that, that number should probably be higher. Uh, to what extent has that uh, that freedom been been stretched here the last couple of years? How has it affected what Canadians believe? You know, do Canadians find a deeper level of spirituality through a crisis? Does it make people question God almost, you know, when, when terrible things are happening? I don't know. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you on what is uh, turning out to be a pretty snowy Tuesday afternoon across much of the province. So if you need to travel anywhere, uh, short distance, long distance, whatever, uh, do take caution. You can reach us here this afternoon in Edmonton, 780-496-0063 in Calgary, 403-974-8255. Got a lot to get to in this hour. We're going to begin in this hour, though, with a conversation uh, about Canada's gun laws. And the role that provinces can play in shaping those laws. Alberta was the first province to create uh, the position of chief firearms officer. And that chief firearms officer uh, is taking aim at the federal uh, so-called assault-style weapons ban that was brought in by Ottawa. That uh, now takes some 1,500 models of firearms and makes those restricted. A letter uh, released last week sent to the federal public safety minister outlining uh, some of the concerns that her office has uh, with this ban and offers some recommendations instead for what Ottawa needs to do to improve public safety, starting with canceling these prohibitions. Well, joining us to talk more about all of this is Alberta's chief firearms officer, Terry Bryant, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ms. Bryant, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we can talk about this letter. Let's talk a bit about the, the position itself. What, what do you then see as, as the role and, and mandate that you have as Alberta's chief firearms officer? Well, I have a mandate letter from the Minister of Justice and Solicitor General. And uh, I guess the most important thing is that uh, there are people who have a similar title to me in other provinces, but with the exception of a recently appointed uh, CFO in Saskatchewan, uh, their scope is much narrower. Mm-hmm. Normally, uh, a chief firearms officer simply administers the federal law um, in their particular province. My mandate is broader to deal with public safety by encouraging uh, appropriate laws. In other words, uh, suggesting areas where the law could be better and could result in greater public safety. And I mean, is that entirely federal jurisdiction, or, or what, what import or say can provinces have here? Uh, well, the, uh, I guess there's, there's two uh, ways of looking at that. From a strictly legislative standpoint, the bulk of this legislation uh, is determined by the federal government. Uh, there is a little bit of uh, discretion here and there, uh, but by and large, it's an area of federal discretion. But what's really important... Uh, I think, is uh, public safety is really a very uh, grassroots local issue. Public safety is what uh, we deal with as citizens every day, how we feel. And so there's a lot of feedback that should be coming up through the system from the local, municipal, provincial level to the federal government. And uh, I don't think that that is um, happening right now. A lot of it tends to be sort of one way. The feds decide what uh, they think would be in the best interest of, of Canada and then sort of say, uh, like it or lump it. And most chief firearms officers don't have the discretion uh, or the mandate to speak out when they disagree with those things. Mm-hmm. But I do. And that's why I've done it. Right. And I mean, obviously, you know, we all have a vested interest in public safety, whether we're firearms owners or not. But I think at the same time, there are some issues that directly affect firearms owners that that don't affect those who who do not own firearms. Do do you see any potential conflict there between between the two? Well, really, there shouldn't be a conflict uh, because firearms owners are more interested than anyone else in public safety. And the reason is, just like anyone else, they could be a victim of a crime. But also, when there is a perception of a lack of public safety, then that's when they are oft- often uh, victimized or scapegoated by 
measures that are adopted in the name of public safety, but really have very little to do with public safety. Let's talk about this uh, letter you sent last week to to the federal uh, public safety minister, Marco Mendicino, that that looks at this uh, ban that was brought in in 2020, the federal government uh, banning what it describes as assault-style firearms. Now, this encompasses more than 1,500 models of firearms, all of which are, I guess, what we would otherwise call semi-automatic rifles, while leaving other semi-automatic rifles uh, not prohibited. I mean, it, it is confusing at some level, but what are your concerns, first of all, with this legislation? Well, I guess there are two things. First of all, uh, I know that the federal government has tried to portray this in uh, the fashion that, uh, as you've just described it, uh, but actually uh, a great many of the firearms that are covered by this ban uh, are not semi-automatic, are not anything that is even modern. Um, you know, a lot of modern firearms have styling that people are not familiar with because they're more customizable, that you can put accessories on them, and a lot of them uh, use black plastic. So superficially, they might look a, a little bit like uh, things that people find scary. But in, in reality, um, they're not. And many of the things that are actually on the list are historical artifacts, some of them many decades old, uh, and not necessarily semi-automatic even. Some of them even maybe single shot. So uh, the way that they have they've pitched this as a ban on one type of thing, but what's covered is actually much broader. But I think the bigger point and the reason that really motivated me to speak out on this topic, uh, because it's a point that is of importance to everyone, not just gun owners, is that what we have here is a a multi-billion dollar boondoggle in the making. This is going to be a very, very costly uh, expenditure and a very costly program. And I think there are much better uses of that money. As I have spoken to law enforcement and other uh, people involved in dealing with the firearms issue, social workers, uh, you know, addiction counselors, all kinds of people like this. Um, all of these kind of programs, which are much more effective ways of fighting uh, violent crime, tend to be underfunded. And so um, we need to, to ensure that money is spent on stable, long-term funding for things like border offices, our firearms office, uh, uh, police guns and gangs units, addiction counselors to, tr- to battle the drug trade, uh, social workers to keep people out of gangs. This is where the money should be going, not going out and intruding into the private lives of law-abiding citizens and taking their property away um, and for no good reason. Right. Well, and yeah, I mean, I referred to this as legislation. I mean, this specific aspect was actually passed via order in council to to reclassify these firearms. Something you point out in the letter, though, is the lack of evidence that's been produced to to justify this. What what have you seen, and and what, what concerns you about that side of it? Well, uh, I think this is a, a very important point from uh, the standpoint of everyone, whether they're a firearms owner or not. Uh, if the government uh, the federal government can reach out and uh, take measure, punitive measures against a group because they might be perceived as uh, unpopular at the moment. Um, if they can do that without providing any evidence, that's a very dangerous precedent for all kinds of other groups because you never know when the group that you are a part of might temporarily become um, unpop- unpopular with the general public and or with the powers that be in Ottawa. And so it's a very dangerous precedent when people can uh, come and confiscate your property and take other punitive measures against you without providing any evidence that uh, this measure is actually necessary or going to contribute to the public good in any fashion. All right. So your letter includes a number of recommendations uh, for the public safety minister with regard specifically to to this this ban, but also more broadly speaking on on the question of public safety. So what are some of those key recommendations? Well, I think the biggest thing is, first of all, that this ban needs to be scrapped right away because it's heading down the wrong direction. And so as the old saying goes, uh, if you're in a hole, the first step to getting out of the hole is to stop digging. So We've tried this approach, and we've been banning this type of firearm and that type of firearm for 40 years. And from the standpoint of uh, crime reduction, it's not an effective strategy. What we really need to do is stop worrying about just trying to distinguish between good guns and bad guns. 
what's really important is distinguishing between good people and bad people. So that's what the main job of our office is. I have many uh, very experienced people working on that. So we need more funding to do this. All of the I've spoken to people across the country working in this Canadian Firearms Program. All of them need more resources, more firearms officers uh, to deal with the uh, ever-increasing workload and ensure that people get to, uh, not just good service, but that the, uh, the public safety is served by having every application screened carefully. We need to w- spend more time and money at the border. Uh, there have been uh, long been calls for uh, greater in, uh, capacity to inspect at the border. We need to spend more pe- more time and money on uh, things that, uh, like the police guns and gangs units. Um, I've identified a number of projects where uh, you could do something that would have a very small uh, financial cost, but a big uh, payback. And of course, you can't just arrest your way out of these kind of issues. You need to address the underlying social problems. And so that means spending some money on social workers to get people, uh, divert people away from gangs, uh, addiction counselors to help people get off uh, drugs because it's really the drug trade that's been fueling a lot of uh, both the violence and the trade in illegal firearms. All right. And uh, has there been any response thus far? Uh, not from the federal government yet, but mm-hmm. I can tell you that uh, I have just been absolutely flooded with, um, you know, messages of support because uh, one of the things that that people in the firearms community feel very strongly about is that their voice has not been heard. Uh, occasionally, there's some symbolic opportunity for them to state their piece, uh, but then the federal government goes, uh, picks itself up, brushes itself off, and goes uh, goes about uh, its business as if it had never heard a thing. And uh, having someone who's willing to speak out, to say the emperor has no new clothes, to say that this program is going to be a costly boondoggle that intrudes on people's rights, uh, infringes on their property rights, intrudes into their private lives without any valid social purpose, uh, the, the gratitude that people have expressed to me for speaking out on their behalf has been very gratifying. We'll leave it there. Terry Bryant, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Okay, thank you very much. All the best. Appreciate- that is Alberta's Chief Firearms Officer, Terry Bryant. Uh, you can find out more at alberta.ca on the, uh, the Chief Firearms Officer. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.